0: Well, welcome back, friends. I am so thrilled about being able to have this conversation for anybody who's familiar with the Zeitcast or with me, because I have been an evangelist for Chris Green, a, a, a John the Baptist, if you will, for Chris Green for a long time. So he he doesn't need an introduction for uh, for many of you. He is, of course, he is Dr. Chris Green as of just a few months ago, and I got to be there for this Really beautiful, really wonderful consecration service. He is Bishop Chris Green. Uh, Where he comes from, he's still brother. He's Brother Green. And to the devil, he is known as public enemy number one. (laughs) Oh, my gosh, man.
1: I remember remember a, a revival service I preached after which this man stood up and said, after a sermon like that, I expect to be driving home and see the devil in a phone booth dialing nine one one. I mean, yeah. What do you say to that? Like, yeah, he, you probably, say? Will.
0: Right. You he say? probably will. That's so great. Um, well, Chris has been. Um, I mean, we we've been together through thick and thin in all kinds of ways. But the most recent way that Chris has saved my life is that in this. Um, sort of emergency advent book that uh, this wild project that was kind of burning a hole in me. I, and I'm telling you, Chris, I thought about this for days. I'd, talked to, I'd mentioned it to Nicole several times. It's like, I, I really feel like this little book needs a Chris Green forward. It just felt like that would, that would be intimate and our friendship and just who you are and how you think theologically. I thought it'd be so great. But um, I was literally embarrassed to ask anybody anything about this book coming out in like 50 seconds. So you texted me about something else. And so I took it as like sort of a mystical prodding, like, oh, well, I could s- see if Chris would be interested in checking out the Advent book. And then I just sort of slid in there, you know, like, if you felt like writing a forward, <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. which, of course, you, 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 you so generously uh, uh, churned out this this beautiful forwarded like forward you know, in like 24 hours, but... Part of what was so wonderful about this experience, I thought it would be a great place to start. As I was writing this, I don't think I was fully aware of just how much this little project really is about Sister Margaret Gaines until mm-hmm. you read it and, and you saw that. And so I thought, yeah. and, and of course, what made it into the final product is considerably different um, at this point, because that was, it almost felt like, you know, sort of like the the twist at the end of a film or something. Yeah. Okay. All, this is, this project has been uh, really about sister Margaret all along. So I, I thought that might just be a good place to, to dive in in terms of even from the earlier, from an earlier version of the manuscript. Yeah. 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 Why That's where you went. Yeah. You, you,
1: yeah. You, when, what I read, the version that I read, which is, you know is a skeleton compared to what it is now i think mm. the the it was still even in that state clear to me that this this was and i think i sent this text to you something along the lines of her intercession is driving this mm. and her her intercession for what's playing out in the world right now what's playing mm. out in in the middle east what's playing out in gaza in the west bank and elsewhere and that sense of who she was and is as a person, and knowing her relationship to you, you you had said to me early on, you had a sense of urgency about the book mm-hmm. that there was a, a kind of a a fire moving you, and it seemed obvious to me, like reading it, oh this this is why, like this is mm. this is something that the the saints are interceding about. So of course, those of us who are close to some of them. in in one way or another because of the way our lives have have been led are going to be moved Mm. to to speak up about it. So I I think that, that seemed really obvious to me and you had, you had, I think at that point it was in chapter four. I can't remember exactly. And then at the end of the book, again, you were talking about her. So she showed up. It's not like you hadn't mentioned or engaged her, but it seemed clear to me, no, this, this is in many ways, her book. I mean, it's you Mm. speaking on her behalf and And our conversation kind of kind of went from there, and then, when you started showing me where that was taking you i that it seemed pretty obviously right to me this yeah this is that's what this book is mm. and I think you know what i what had hit me is how fitting it is that this is that a work like this follows, it's, it's a part of her legacy. It's a part, yeah. you know, when we're comfortable talking in those terms, those of us who've been raised and we're leery about talking about the intercession of the saints, sure. You know, we don't hesitate to talk about the legacy of our mothers and fathers in the faith. But of course, I think those things are one, right? That, yeah. that the life that she lived and the prayer that she's become are one. Hmm. And her influence on you personally before she died is now has now been brought up into the spirit, and mm. so of course that's going to create urgency in you when you see what's happening to her people and her place. Yeah, how could it not? Right, that's that's your mother, and those yeah. are your people mm. because they're her people.
0: Yes, yes, and
1: that I think is what I some at least some of what I was sensing as I read.
0: Well, um, it, I mean, I of course I started crying when you said that because for whatever other things I don't know what to think about um, a lot, but I know I take very seriously that communion of the saints and that landed in such a deep place with me, this idea of this being a product of her intercession. I think the other thing reason that felt like it really unlocked something in me was, and I feel like I, I keep reintroducing Margaret all the time, but if anybody's not familiar, my um, spiritual grandmother's I call her um, died in 2017, but this, the person who most influenced my life with God, this Pentecostal woman who became a missionary to Abu Village in the occupied West Bank, um, just remarkable person. But Chris, I, um, the thing that also just so um, I, I th- just kind of wrecked me about that, I, I feel like the last couple of months I've struggled for words, as I know a lot of us have. Mm. And in my role as director of the Center for Spiritual Life at DePaul, I'm walking with students, Jewish students, Muslim students. So that's kind of has its own pastoral weight, but feeling like th- there's something I should say, something I'd want to say. But Chris, I know I know this is something that you'll identify with because as as wonderful as a creative thinker as you are theologically, I see you do this all the time in terms of finding, finding yourself or finding where we are on a map through the voices of various saints and theologians. It's almost like I, I never, I still don't feel like I found words for any of that. But it's almost like Margaret is what I would want to say. Like her life is what I'd want to say, or all I know to say. Yeah, I mean, so many. Yeah, absolutely. I think
1: one is to kind of recognize it's not ours to say directly. I mean, I I, I got as you do. I mean, I I I get you know a a reasonable or unreasonable amount of pressure to respond to anything that you know Mm. becomes part of the discourse. Right? I'm expected to by this group or that to have a, have a response to it. And one of the things I said early on is, I mean, there's some things that I'm, I'm not, I don't have the moral authority to speak to directly. Mm. They're not mine to speak to. And of course I have opinions about them. The most sure. important thing is that I'm praying about them and that I'm listening to people who do have the moral authority. Yeah. So what I tried try to do is make sure that I, my ears are open, that I'm mm. crying out in prayer, but I'm listening to the people. And I, I think, some of what's happening in this book is you are directing attention to someone who has all the moral authority in the world to talk Mm. about these things, Mm. right? Rather than you weighing in with, you know, Jonathan Martin's take on what's playing out in the world. It's no, this, this woman lived it. Her life was at stake for years with these people. Like this is her language in every sense of the word. Mm. This is her world. And so I think the wisdom of that's that's wisdom, I also think attending to the God she knew so well and mm-hmm. and the way of life that she learned to follow, you know mm-hmm. and it that sense of the the appropriateness of again of course, you and I and everyone else listening to this, we have our own opinions about what's playing out socially and yeah. politically, what should and shouldn't happen. And and some of that should be plain to us. So don't, no, I'm not simply saying it's a matter of opinion. There are some things that, that should be obvious to us, evils that we should call evil yeah. and demand justice be done. But at the end of the day, like our emphasis has to be, you know, as as people who are called, our emphasis has to be on who are the people, the prophetic people who are actually given words to say, mm-hmm. And how do we attend to them and to the God they're witnessing to mm. rather than just, again, throwing out our thoughts, our condemnations or affirmations or whatever they might be? And I, I feel like this book does that beautifully. She, as, as you said, like she is a full bodied, whole person response. And we, we need to know her story, know what she lived for, and the God who made her life possible. The, mm. the 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 vision of the life that she she had was born out of what she knew about the lord and yeah your book is testifying to her and to the lord she knew
0: mm. that was a powerful thing you said to me that also as you know made it in the in the final version of the book um was what you said about well, even like kind of Mark's gospel really being Peter's gospel and this, you know, this idea that kind of a similar spirit. This is Sister Margaret's book. You're just testifying. That felt really right. And Chris, even when you, two things that are not directly connected in the book, but are kind of lighting up for me now, you know, the way I, I never know for those of us who believe in these sources of authority, I don't know how to work out the math in terms of, scripture tradition reason whatever but i know the the hook for me for years now all i know to i keep talking about it this idea of that there is a sound of god and you know that sound when you hear it and you know that which is not that sound and i i think i'm just aware on the other side of this that when i describe early on the the unique cocktail that is margaret Gaines, they they're being the most tender person i've ever been around like a tenderness that that's kind of shattering, like, uh, you know, almost on an uncomfortable level. I, I mean, I don't know if I've ever been around her or not. I, I tell these things. I know people think I might just go around crying all the time. I, I really don't. But, but in her presence, I mean, I'd feel that broken open like every time, just unbearably mm. tender, but also a fierceness to her that, yeah. that and, and all of that just kind of swirling together and, it's interesting that when I do think about the sound of God and I do think there is a sound and I do trust that sound more than uh, what anybody else is going to, is going to say about the sound um, that that sound very much is Margaret's sound that the sound of her, mm-hmm. it, that she very much is to me what God sounds like. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and that she, she's resonating right with that sound. And and to mm-hmm. me with her is to kind of have that, that sound resonate in you. I, I, yeah, Absolutely. Right. I think, this is this is what the presence of holy people does to us right it it, mm. it brings us back into into hearing uh, of of the holiness of god so yeah I, I think that's that seems exactly right to me and i think it's that sense of tenderness that's that's not at all uh, a kind of fainting before the brokenness of the world like there there was something incredibly bold daring in her fierce as you said Mm. and powerful but it was a there was it was absolutely meek and playful sweet yes you know and and yet again but not in any way that's sentimental or you know kind of cheap or there there was nothing false about that sweetness nothing saccharine about that and that that is another mark i think that Of, it's it's not the only mark of the saints. I don't think all the saints sound and feel alike. In fact, I think each one of them has a a distinct voice, right? Yes. In the way that Paul doesn't sound like Luke, and Luke doesn't sound like Isaiah, but there is a sense in which their lives can't help but bear witness to the truth they've come up against, and Margaret, Margaret's life absolutely had that, Mm. and. This this book is a testament to to that. E- even if you know it's in your voice, it's your voice talking about what it was like to hear her yeah. hear the Lord. Right? Yeah, and I I think there's something about uh, just about that dynamic uh, and the no. beauty of me hearing her in your voice talking about the Lord, like that. The ways in which that draws me to you and us to her and and in her to. The lord and what the lord is doing now for all of his people
0: mm.
1: including you know people on both sides of the lines around gaza that that seems right to me that's that, yeah. that that seems with whatever i don't understand
0: i do absolutely believe that's that's the way that god works right yeah there. yeah chris um i love what you said I, that feels so right to me the sense that I know the saints all speak in a singular way. There is there is particularity to their voices to a point. And yet, one of the other things, because I'll never forget that, honestly. These handful of texts within a couple of days were so electrifying. But I, I feel like that's happened to us a lot of times about things. Like if we if we just getting in a room, having a conversation, this case it was text, where suddenly it's like, what on earth? I'm really I'm kind of like, what's happening right now? There's such electricity. But, you know, I wrote that little chapter, God Kicked Inside Her, about Mary, and literally about, mm-hmm. you know, Jesus kicking in, in the womb of Mary. At that point, you had al- already written this gorgeous little forward where you talk about Eddie Hillsome. And I did not know, or I didn't remember if I'd heard this, um, what you sent to me then, because I, I described Margaret as like, Margaret is, was the kind of person that it felt like God kicked inside of, that that literally was part Absolutely. of of her experience. I mean that's just stunning to me. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, no, it's 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 one of the I mean I'm getting chills now thinking about it. That that, that exchange between us and then the ways in which that connects again to Eddie Hillson's story and you know what she, what she's experiencing again in the darkest place imaginable for us. I mean mm-hmm. in Auschwitz, right? I mean in in a concentration camp. She's sensing that kicking in her womb, right? She knows God's alive there. And this shows up in her diaries in a couple of places and in in some of her letters as well, that she's, she is aware right here Mm -hmm. in the midst of all this. She's in one, in one of the sections, I think I sent this to you. I think this is actually in the forward where she says, you know, we, you cannot help us now. Mm -hmm. In other words, you're not going to swoop in and rescue us from, the ramifications of what is happening here but we can help you and what we have to do is guard your place in us to the last and that place of god in her that that baby in the womb that's what she's talking about in in that passage waking up in the middle of the night listening to the the people around her the other women and girls in the in the in the beds around her listening to them snore and mutter and realizing you know, this is God in me, there's an mm. infinite tenderness that's what she says mm. an mm. infinite tenderness that comes up in me mm. and that that's it it's it's tenderness, but it's an infinite tenderness right it's it's not just a sentimental kind of momentary compassion in which you something moves you and then you move on, yeah like an infinite tenderness moves me, and that i mean that is. Where the saints are, right? That mm. kind of holiness doesn't happen unless it happens in the midst of those who are God, for, who are seemingly God-forsaken. Mm. Mm. And again, that's that's what Margaret's life tells us, right? I mean, she's yes. she made her home amongst people that many, many of us, many of the people in Margaret's world and in our world don't consider they should have a home. Sure, that we've let we've let our politics dictate how we feel and what we think of these human beings and, and so much that something like home could be taken away mm-hmm. and us not be
0: moved by it. Yeah. Right. And she made her home right there. Yeah. Um, Chris, when you talk about the, you know, how, how many of us are not, moved by that are not able to see the world that way. I think that's one of the things that's haunted me about when you talk about Eddie Hillsum and we talk about when I think about Margaret's experience because Margaret never had that's the strange thing to me about Saints too is that they're there's such power in them, but they're not powerful. I mean she never had influence she never mm-hmm. had reach. I remember yes. her yes. more than once talking about the little book that she wrote in 2010, Small Enough to Stop the Violence how she'd never had a prophetic experience like that. I feel like something just sort of carried her away. But then, broadly speaking, it's it's not it's not a book that people have read. And uh, not like this, like, well, the world's just so dumb. I mean, one of the things I, I, I found myself grappling with as I was writing is a sense of not only how sad I am that more people haven't felt her influence and heard her voice in that way, but I did hear her voice, but don't always remember or mm-hmm. don't act like i did and just the there's just something for me there about the um that god forsakenness and that the marginalization of these saints even if they're very central to us that these are not people who are pulling levers culturally somehow
1: yeah that, that's absolutely i love that there's a there's a powerlessness, a weakness uh, w- what comes to mind is that passage in in Corinthians where Paul talks about you know God has formed the body mm. so that the, the, you know there are members that are prominent, members that are honorable, and then there's those members that are hidden and the members that are dishonorable and I think Margaret is one of those i mean she's she's an internal organ mm. right? she's she's hidden from view. She's she's not the eye, she's not the voice, she's not she's not the the bearing that is going to be noticed and seen by everyone. I mean, she's she's a life sustaining organ hidden away. But we can't imagine the kind of vitality she affords us. Hmm. Right? And and again, this goes back to where she made her home, right? She's she's at home in places where people, women and girls especially, don't don't have what should be theirs, yeah, right. And I, I remember once hearing her talk about, and I'm sure you remember this too, her talking about recognizing the moment she recognized when she was a young girl and still mm-hmm. before she had even gone um, as a missionary, before she'd left as a missionary, having this realization that she was a day laborer in her own life, mm. not the architect of her life. Mm. Right? And I think some of what she was recognizing then is that not only was she not going to have, she wasn't the architecture architect of a church or a movement or mm. a people. She wasn't even the architect of her own life. Yeah. And she was at peace with that. Yeah. She was at peace with that. And that's where the, the holiness emanated from. You know, that that recognition, just unbelievable humility and openness to what God can do with that smallness. It's not an accident, right? Mm. That that that's the singular line she's left with us, right? Mm. Will Will someone be small enough to stop the violence? Mm. And I think I think I said to you in the, in our conversations about the book. I mean, now she is small enough. Mm. I mean that that she's passed through death into the life of God. She is small enough. And this this is, seems fitting to me that this is a way that her work would come to bear that yeah. she doesn't need to be known. Like the last yeah. thing she needs is to be known. What she cares about is that justice is done for these these children.
0: Yes, yes.
1: And of course, they're all children. Some of them have aged right. more than others, but she mm-hmm. she's Mother Margaret, right? Mm-hmm. And that, that's another that's another aspect of this that I don't. I don't know if we even want to get into this just now, but I think the Kim, Kimberly and Alexander and I have talked a lot about this, that one thing, our movement in particular, and here I'm talking about Pentecostal charismatic movement globally is that again and again and again, God has given us mothers like mother Margaret that we haven't honored as mothers. Mm. And in, there's, there's a kind of presumption on their on the way that they are caring, and we've I, I don't I don't know that we well I, I will say it like this we do not honor mothering in the right ways and some of that is because yeah. I mean we could get into this this would be a long conversation about why that is but I don't want to forget right that's that she's she's a mother right she's yeah. and and her her authority comes from that kind of care i mean where the motherhood Mm -hmm. of god is happening in the way that she is caring for for others including including you you know like it's Mm -hmm. not that's uh that tenderness extended to you as well i mean she's bringing Mm -hmm. you under her wing
0: yes yes well and the since you can't talk about advent without talking about mary and then it feels like you know, you you had that, that yeah. wonderful line about how for me, you know, this you know, Margaret as a daughter of Mary who lived in the places where Mary lived and uh lived as she lived, and how, how much that oh, that, that idea is so coming to life for me right now. I love, Chris, what you said to, well, everything. I mean the this this notion of of not knowing how to honor the authority of our mothers and honoring you know, as mothers. Um but I, I, I'm struck too, Chris, by when you were talking about the Margaret's humility because it was, I, and a, a lot of this language would, I'm sure, make people uncomfortable. But whenever Margaret talked about her life, she would talk about being, you know, giving herself to be trampled up, tra- trampled up and snuffed out, and ephemeral. All the language, very, like you know, this is very much she, she saw herself as, like I, I have yielded my life, and so you've got like this radical surrender. Yes. And yet, one of the things that, and I, because I don't really know where this came from, um, but in writing that just felt somehow important to say, because I think we're right to name Mary's story as a story of radical surrender and a path of radical surrender. Mm-hmm. But especially in a time where, and I mean, we could talk about this. Is another thing we could talk about for a whole other podcast. We I, maybe the two of us wouldn't change anybody's minds who think this way already, but for people who have some idea that there's this eschatological script, this end time script, and everything that's happening in the Middle East right now is, because I've I've heard so many pastors say some version of like, well, oh, hey, I'm not, it's not like I don't have a heart. I hate to see these images too, but this is what has to happen because it's in the script. Um, This is what, let's
1: let's do say say something about that. I don't, we're not going to change anybody. No, jump in. Go, go. Let's let's say this. I mean, there, there are endless problems with that, but one of the things that, you, and you point to this in the book, I mean, part of what makes the saints, the saints and the prophets, the prophets is that they refuse to play by the script. Yes. So even if there were scripts, and, and of course I'm going to immediately come back and say, of course there isn't. I mean, right. God doesn't play by scripts. Like that's not who our God is. I mean, he's a living God. He's not, he's mm-hmm. not a, a play, but you know, He's not a paint by numbers God. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the, the notion of an eschatological script or that has to happen is is an offense to God. I mean, God is not hemmed in by his own decisions, Mm. right? And it's God is not handcuffed. His purposes are not limited to only a couple of possible ways forward. So it's never true of God. I mean, I just talked about this last night. With God, all things are possible. That's Mm. that's what Elizabeth recognizes. When Mary comes through the door and greets her, and John kicks in Elizabeth's womb, and Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit, what comes out of her mouth is not just a blessing over Mary, but is a blessing of God as the one for whom all things are possible. Yes. All things are possible for this God. Mm. So don't come at me with, it has to play out this way. Right? No, yeah. with God, all things are possible. So do not bring that at me. right? But even if it were true that this had to be, what would mark out Abraham and Moses and David and Paul, and Margaret and everyone else who's worthy of the name saint or prophet is they're going to fight. Mm. They're going to resist that script for the sake of the people who in that script are the oppressed, the, the the left out, the trampled down. And I think that's how we have to hear Margaret when she's talking about what's happening to her life. Yes. she's She's suffering what the people she's called to love suffer. And she's right. not going to be – she's not – she's not charitable she's not living yeah. a privileged life and then reaching down to help people who are yeah. trampled she's underfoot too yeah and and there's a way of knowing God in which you experience that in the way that only God makes it experienceable and that mm-hmm. isn't some kind of violence it isn't yeah. subjugation it isn't yeah. it isn't God dominating but it is an experience of God that makes it so that you can be at peace when you are with those who are being trampled and are being trampled as they are. Mm. And that's what I think Margaret is naming. It's also what I think Eddie Hillisome is naming. You know, that that mm. passage that you mentioned before, she talked about how as a young woman, I mean, she was young when she died, but an even younger woman, that her kind of first encounter with God, which she goes to her knees kind of against her own will, mm. and she becomes a kneeler in training. I Ooh. mean, this is... This sense of, and I don't know I don't know how we find this, and I, I know this is difficult to talk about well, and I certainly don't pretend to be able to do it. There is a kind of subjugation and a kind of submission and yieldedness that has to do with power, has to do with control, has to do with, in almost every case that we know, with male-centered control, with patriarchal yeah. control, and we in no way want to affirm that for sure. anyone right? I mean, that is that is not good. It, it One of the reasons it's not good, though, is that it is a parody, a mockery mm. of a kind of submission that is good.
0: Yeah.
1: A kind of yieldedness that is good. And Mar- the tenderness that Margaret had, and now has, the infinite tenderness that Eddie Hillison sensed in that mm-hmm. barracks, like, that is a yieldedness we absolutely have to have. And yeah. it's infinitely qualitatively other than the subjugation of a woman under the headship of the male or like what we talk about as submission Mm -hmm. and yieldedness, right? That's, that's not to be affirmed that there is no good version of that, but there is a good that that is a mockery of, and that's what Hillism discovered. That's what Margaret knew. That's what I think this book is calling us to. So, and there's so many, you sparked me in so many directions at once, Mm. but I think that's part of the, part of the fire of, her life and this story you're telling is yeah. it is pointing to something true. That's, that's kind of been lost in the smoke of all the nonsense we've said about eschatology and about submission
0: and about yes. the place of women and mothers and so on.
1: And it's getting through that smoke back to the, to the light.
0: Yeah. Man, that's so good. And I love you differentiating these sort of different kinds of surrender. Cause I think even where a lot of people now don't are comfortable with, any language of surrender. It's still on some level, anybody who's ever created anything. I mean, there always has to come a moment of yielding to something outside yourself, something beyond yourself, something. um, But to your point, Chris, I'm really, I want to ask this an earnest question. I'd really love to know what you'd say about this, especially given your context, not only as a bishop and all the things, but as as a Pentecostal theologian who's deeply connected with the history of the movement, because I've been thinking about this on some level for years, and I don't think I've said it, I don't think I've asked anyone about, about this. So I want to ask you: Why do you think it is? Because one of the things that I think is wonderful about our tradition is there's this lively continuity with well, our God is this is the same God of uh, of Abraham and and Moses, yeah. all the patriarchs and matriarchs. So that same power is available to us. Miracles happen now. The Red Sea could still be parted. Like all the things. Why is it that that thing that we see through all of these prophetic figures of being willing to go toe-to-toe with God, Moses arguing with God over the people, Abraham bartering, and uh, mm. uh, we, I, I, I go to that a little bit in the book. Why is it that that's never something that's translated, per se, into the tradition where anybody's like, well, well, to be, to walk the path of the prophets, to walk in that same Holy Ghost, power, authority, whatever, would also look like that. Why is that not mm. something that ever seems to be on the table? Well, I,
1: yeah, I think it is. It's just, it's, there's, a, there's a difference, I think, between the conventional form of Pentecostal charismatic spirituality mm. and the authentic form and yeah. i think because it's such a a populist movement and a popular one and because it's it's exploded around the world in the way that it has the conventional forms are the ones that we know best because most yeah. of the people we know who identify with the mo- movement identify with that conventional form yeah but i think there're always there's there's always a minority report right and mm-hmm. so if if you come yeah. at this the, and and i've written about this and you and i've discussed it like if you look at the history of of race and racism as it relates mm. to pentecostalism. I mean, predominantly that's a, ho- a horrifying story. Sure. You know, it's a, it's a it's an ugly grievous story. But there is a minority report. There have mm. always been men and women who have right from the beginning at the beginning of the movement called those sins for what they are, rec- you know, and and embodied alternatives that are, are are truer witnesses of of what God desires from mm. us and i I think the same is true here that there have been genuine prophets who whose lives were intercessory who were not mm. willing to, to be rescued apart from their people you know and and so in that sense we're we're ready to go toe to toe with God yeah in fact and again this is something we've discussed before this this is what I think makes the story of Noah and the story of Job so poignant mm. is that Noah when he's told I'm going to destroy the world and start over he doesn't argue
0: mm.
1: and this is this is why the rabbis will say Noah is the least righteous of all the righteous well wow. he's righteous but he's not righteous in the way that Moses and Abraham are mm. because he doesn't insist He doesn't intercede, and he doesn't insist on God delivering those who are going to be left out. Wow. And in Job's case, you have something similar in that Job repents when he shouldn't. Mm. He he subjects himself when that's not what's being required. And and if I go back to that distinction I made just a moment ago between kind of holy yieldedness, holy submission, and subjugation, which is unholy, God is trying to show him this this holy yieldedness. He's trying to awaken in in him a, a kind of submission that opens out on freedom. But Job subjugates himself. You know, so he says at the end, you know, I, I've heard about you with the ear. Now I see you with the eye, and I abhor myself, and I repent in dust and ashes.
0: Hmm.
1: And what's striking is God doesn't answer. Hmm. Like if you go and read the Book of Job, when Job does this. God doesn't say a thing,
0: mm.
1: which try to find another instance in scripture where someone repents and God doesn't respond. Wow. And what, what happens mm. instead is that God speaks to Job's friends. And what mm. he says to Job's friends is, you have spoken wrongly about me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So go to Job and he will pray for you. And when he prays for you, I will forgive you. Mhm. And then Job's life turns, hmm. right? Then there's this sudden blessing. Now, I think part of the way the story is designed to work on us is to, it, the temptation would be to think, oh, Job repented, and therefore God yeah. gave him all the blessings. But that's what the friends told us would happen. They kept wow. telling Job, you're sinning, and if you stop sin, stop sinning, God will restore your life. Yeah. But Job didn't have anything to repent of. Mm -hmm. And this is why God doesn't forgive him. God forgives the friends because of Mm. Job's intercession. Mm. And it's Job's intercession for his friends who've sinned against him that brings him in in alignment with the heart of God. So I I think Mm -hmm. we we see that same calling on, well, it happens rarely, but that's what we're all called to. It's just I think many of us, because of the conventional forms of faith, we end up thinking God wants subjugation and we yeah. play the part of repenting instead of the part of wow. intercession. And we end up affirming the friends. We we end mm. up with a with a faith that has a lot more to do with Bildad than it does wow. with with Job
0: and, and the God yeah. of Job and, and the God of Jesus. Mm. <laughs> That's a that would be a fascinating conversation of itself as all the repenting that we do that it's not what God asked for <laughs> repentance that God doesn't care about. Oh yeah. Well, I wasn't interested in that actually, but <laughs> yeah, and, and, and isn't that,
1: isn't that another way of playing by a script, right? So yeah, just like well, we think there's this theological mm-hmm. script, I mean, what are we going to do about, I mean, and, and and the ways in which those scripts make us think about not persons, yeah, but abstractions mm-hmm. so that, Israel and Palestine become abstractions in our schemes and we're not thinking about people with names. Yeah. We're not we're not seeing faces. We're not recognizing the the living human beings who are sons and daughters and neighbors and husbands and wives. Mm. And that's where the callousness comes in. Is we're dealing with abstractions yeah. on a script. And then our repentances are about abstractions and mm. we're not recognizing our own humanity or the humanity of other people. And this is one of the things I'm convinced of about God. God doesn't even see abstractions. Like abstractions mm. aren't real to God. Mm. Right. But it's not something that <laughs> we're talking about abstractions. God doesn't even know what we're talking about. Right? Yeah. Like yeah. it's not even the uh, it's not even real for him in in any recognizable way. So I, I, I think what you're pointing to in the book when you talk about Abraham, his intercession—I mean that—that's what it looks like to kind of. Ref- Abraham is not thinking about Sodom and Gomorrah mm. as abstractions. Yeah. He's thinking about Lot.
0: Yeah. Mm.
1: He's not thinking about justice in abstraction. He's thinking about I love some of these people, <laughs> and and they all deserve justice, and and that. Mm. Yeah, it should be obvious to us, but it's easy to get clouded about mm. it.
0: I, I don't want to detour into this, but it just it's so sort of alive for me right now. And we talk about God not even seeing abstractions because when Nicole and I had this conversation the other night, that uh, for the podcast towards the very end, she asked me kind of, so where have you been? Like I know, but it's sort of like where have you been <laughs> like the last couple of years in terms of, and I, I, it's fascinating. In this same idea you talk about margaret becoming small enough and and praying that i would become small that was one thing she said in your, in your text i thought about so much about how these last few years of my life it's sort of been between my family and things they've gone through and then in the work that's happening here the people in front of me are kind have are all that exist and some of it i feel like has been schooling that out of me to think it abstractions mm-hmm. at all like kind of just no capacity to do that because what's what's right here is so present and so immediate and um feeling like that shifted that shifted so many things. I'd love to I do want to ask you, Chris, just a little more broadly because this is a book about Advent. And you know, since we've been on this journey together for so long and everything from coming up where we come from with the same sort of tradition and wonder and baggage and all the stuff and sure. sort of be on these parallel and then converging paths in terms of, oh, well, next, wait, we're preaching from the lectionary now and there's weekly communion and there's like all the things. It's so interesting to me when I think about it, because another thing I I could actually, I feel like I didn't make until like almost the end was that Margaret was the first person that was an influence for me. I heard really talk about Advent, which was not in her tradition Mm. per se. I don't know how she ended up every Sunday at her church in a bood Preaching through the Advent candles every December, but that's what she did. I mean, it's the Church of God lady from Pell City, Alabama, preaching through the Advent candles in a boot. You know, it's uh, it's just remarkable the the path that she carved out in that way. So, um, I, I'm just because I know you've been thinking a lot about Advent in general, and uh, I know a lot of the emphasis in the book is on waiting, but it does have to to be about that. I'm curious as to what this is stirring in you now. uh, As we talk about sister Margaret, as we talk about her way of intercession and like all of that with how you're experiencing Advent for yourself in the world right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean,
1: I think it's, there's this shift that I think we all have to to undergo that waiting on God in some ways it's all waiting. You say, you say this in the book, right? I mean, that there's a way in which waiting is just what it is to be human. But I, I think there's a, there's a line when you can cross at some point in which you realize there's waiting, and then there's waiting the way that God waits. Mm. You know, the, So I can, I can wait on God, or I can learn to wait with God on God, mm. and that's something different. Right. And I'm not pretending to be able to to do that, but I am starting to sense that that's what I want to do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I I don't think I'm doing it, but I I am at least aware that I think it's doable Mm -hmm. and I would love to do it. I would love to live the last, the second half of my life as, and I mean, I'm already well into that second half, I guess, but I'd like to live the second half of my life, not just waiting on God, but waiting with God on God. Mm And that that sense of tarrying, but not tarrying in the absence of God. Yeah. Right. Tarrying being something you know our Pentecostal forebears gave us. But not waiting as if God might or might not show up, or waiting yeah. as if once God shows up, suddenly life is is going to sort itself out. Like the the God we're waiting on is already here. Yeah. And of course, there's a sense in which God is coming in new ways, and there's the coming of of, of all that is going to make all things right. So, I mean, there's I don't I don't mean in the sense of kind of endless deferral. I mean, I, I believe sure. God is coming. God is showing up in all kinds of ways, many times in our lives. But even when God comes, He comes to kind of make a new kind of waiting possible, a new mm-hmm. a new kind of attention. And and I do think that's it. I think to wait with God for God is to be attentive differently and, mm. and to, to have a, and I don't know how to say this, that this is more intuitive than anything else. It's somehow to have your longing intensified, but mm. to be more patient too. Wow.
0: Right. So like
1: to be your, your longing is more and more desperate, but you're not restless. Yeah. You know, you're, you're not sped up by it. Mm. And I, I think what, and again, this is, this is what I think we see in the saints that there's a a deep and almost painful longing for God, Mm. but it doesn't make them impatient. It doesn't hurry them up. It doesn't make them grasp at things. Mm. And I I think, again, I'm not living that, but I I can see it enough that I want to.
0: Yeah, it's almost, uh, I've been thinking about so much the way that I feel like so much of my life I'm sort of, trying to keep the longing at bay and how advert becomes a time in particular to not just welcome it, but to, but to make a home in it. And that being very different from the ways of always trying to, to outrun it, to outrun longing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Can I, can
1: I ask you a question? A couple actually, Yeah, please. So, let me put that question back at you. How, now that you've written the books, I mean, we've talked a lot about kind of the movement Toward writing it and the process of writing it, now that it's done what what do you th- what do you feel like has shifted for you and your awareness like the and maybe it wasn't about finishing the book, but in this advent, how has your attention been altered do you think mm.
0: well wow, that's such a great question i mean i think I think one of the things I'm experiencing right now, chris, is just uh, it, it uh, and I don't want to make too much of this because just like even Margaret's whole thing of being small enough. Not that I feel like the book is um, – the, the book in and of itself is a big deal, but it feels like a big release for me somehow in ways, like personally, like like an internal release that's something like uh, – maybe it's something of my own sense of resignation to – well, in the same way I reference, you know um, – Billy Kyle's being the guy who was there when King was shot. So then he goes around for fifty years. That's all he talks about. Because of course you're inviting that's what the he guy do who was him. there with when Martin Luther King was shot. And and like this, really, I, I feel way more in synchronicity when I when I fully accepted the fact. I really don't have any story to tell except the stories of these handful of people in my life. This is all I got to talk about. And I don't I don't I don't need to think so of something else. I don't need to be more creative or clever like like this is this is it there's something about that that just feels right Mm -hmm. sort of like margaret is always always um kind of at the foreground of my mind but needs to be out in front of any you know with anything that i'm that i'm doing um there there's a there's a lot of peace in that for me of feeling like uh not not hiding behind something but does that make sense at all it
1: does. I mean, it, what it makes me think about in your book is the chapter on Simeon and Anna, mm. and one of the things, just just as your friend, I mean, one of the things that I I've always loved about you, and I, I think comes through in your writing and your preaching, because it's in you, is the tenderness you have toward not just Margaret, but people like your your elders. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm thinking now about Ricky Moore as well as Margaret, and I sensed that. And not just Ricky and Margaret, but but people who who have that, who've gone before you. Many of whom nobody else would know. I mean, Ricky and Margaret are somewhat known, but people no one else would know. And and the ways in which you're 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 open to them, attentive to them, and I think I, I sense that reading what you were saying about Simeon and Anna. It's like you recognize mm-hmm. their. They seemed human to you. Again, they weren't types or or abstractions. I mean, th- this is an old man and an old woman finally getting to sigh with relief at the end of their lives. Yeah. And and not just with relief, but with delight. Like God is is doing what he promised. And I, I no kind of grand comment on it. I, I just I find that endearing. I love that. And right. I, I think I love that about you. And I, I love that it came through in the book.
0: Well, and that's, it's such a generous thing to say, but I I tell you, Chris, it's it's, because I don't think I was even making this connection. Well, because that part I would have written before this experience, but in terms of the way these storylines continue to converge, I've barely talked about publicly at all, just because again, it's sort of been so much of a season. I feel like I'm living too intensely in the moment to, to know how to reflect on it, know how to talk about it. But, you know, just about six weeks ago, I took on this additional little role here of pastoring Fillmore United Methodist Church and uh, very rural Indiana, about 15 minutes from here. And uh, there, there are 50 people or so on Sunday mornings. And Chris, there are only a handful of people in that church that are under 70, like just a handful. And mm-hmm. I, I guess I'm maybe six Sundays into this. And I, I really can't believe just how much, what a gift that experience has been. Already because I, there is something of that, Simeon and Anna, that kind of, oh, like this, yeah, this changes my, whatever. I don't know if I'm accomplishing anything for them or not, but this absolutely changes me just to kind of be with our people and the, 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 all the stories that their faces tell and being instructed by that. I, I think I, that just comes for me out of probably just recognizing a deep need for those kinds of elders and for those kinds of experiences in my Mm. life. Mm.
1: That's beautiful. It's beautiful. And it's a, in our world, and I mean the one you and I live in, it's, it's very frequent for those who are aging to be forgotten by their communities. Mm. I mean, one of the things you and I have discussed this, but one of the things that's really painful for me is to see people who've given their lives to ministry, pastor churches or, you know, led ministries just get too old to keep doing that, and then yeah. they're put out to pasture. You yeah, know? and there's a there's something holy about bringing the child Jesus to Simeon and Anna wherever they are, mm. right? Like, and and to just show up in the smallest way, in the in the most unpretentious way possible. To lead communion, preach a sermon, say hello, greet them in the name of the Lord, and get, hug their yeah. necks. Right, that that yeah. kind of just let me pastor you for just an hour. On a, but I'm getting to show you here's the child Jesus again, mm. and Aaron and Simeon and all of those people again whose names we won't know. They get to see right yeah. that okay we can depart in peace because this is this I, I, that's man. I think that's that's holy, holy, holy work, in part because yeah. it's hidden. I mean, it, yeah. that, this, yeah. is, this is another thing I'm becoming more and more and more convinced of, that the the gap between what we can see and what strikes yeah. us as important and what God is actually doing is immeasurable, right? And that mm. what God is actually doing in the world has almost nothing to do with what
0: we can see that's and what right. we can measure. In fact, it yeah.
1: doesn't have anything to do with it except – Incidentally, right? Yeah, that the there there are ways in which some saints, of course, you know, someone like Martin Luther King, does kind of bring the kingdom of God, if only for a moment, kind of right in our faces, and sure. we, we have to confront it, or William Seymour at Azusa Street, or these these moments in which suddenly we see it, but it's it's gone, yeah, in a flash, right? Bonhoeffer for just a moment, and mm. then it's gone. But most of what God is doing in the world is, you know, it's the seed in the loaf. I mean, a yeah. seed in the ground, or it's the yeast in the loaf. And we don't see what's happening. Right. And it's happening in, you know, church filled with 70-year-old people, none of us know. Yeah. And yet, I say filled, I guess half filled with
0: <laughs> uh,
1: uh, <laughs> 70-year-old. I, I just I, And I've, I'm coming to not only to recognize that, but to delight in it, like to yeah. delight in the humility of a God who doesn't need to be famous, it doesn't need to be seen or noticed, mm. and and the people who are like that, who who have the kind of ease in their own skin, they don't they don't need to have a persona, and they yeah. they don't need they don't need the the limelight. I I I don't know if we discussed this or not, but th- this is what hit me recently about the the apostle Andrew, he's in the gospel mm. of John. He's the first apostle called. And as soon as he's called, he and another disciple who's unnamed, perhaps John the beloved, but whoever it is, the two of them go and Andrew finds Peter and says, we have found the Lord mm. and brings Peter to Jesus. And when he comes to Jesus, Jesus begins to speak to Peter, you know, you're you're the rock, so on. And it I was reading his story. I had to preach a service, and it was on the feast of St. Andrew. Mm. And I realized as I was preparing for that, all I know about Andrew is that he's Peter's brother mm. and that he's the first called. And as I sat with it, I realized like this is this is why Jesus called Andrew. And I, I found this this and I, I I mean, it's been there all along. I just had never noticed that in the iconographic tradition, Andrew is often shown kind of stepping back and making room for Peter. So he's brought Peter mm-hmm. to Jesus, but now he's stepped back and he had, kind of has his hand open so that Peter can step into the first place mm. and be face to face with Jesus. And it, it hit me like this, this is what makes Andrew like Jesus, and like the God Jesus reveals. Wow. He doesn't need to be in. The limelight, like he can yeah. be overshadowed and he's glad to be because he knows that it's when you're overshadowed that the spirit is working in you. Mary was overshadowed and mm-hmm. life came into her and that he he didn't need to be in the light. He was glad to step into the shadows so that other people could be in the light. And yeah. that's without resentment or without... Fear, or and it's also not just a personality quirk. It's not as if right. you know Andrew's just one of those guys who really enjoys being behind the scenes. You know, sure, it's, right. <laughs> it's not like he did some kind of spiritual gift inventory yeah. or his enneagram type is oh, it's just someone who doesn't need. No, no, no. no. It's not about that. It's about mm. the the sheer delight in others coming to know the goodness you've seen. Yeah, right. It's it's like you know when when you love someone. And you experience a song or a film or a meal, something that just turns you. Yeah. Of course, you just want them to know that. Like you want them to see it and hear it. And like that kind of comfortability with with stepping back and letting Mm. being overshadowed in the best sense. Like I think I think that's what we all need to learn, right? We all and some of us more than others, some of us sooner than others, but all of us need to learn. And I think These, you know, Simeon and Anna have learned that. Joseph learned that. I mean, Mm. think about Jesus' stepdad. Like, you talk about being overshadowed, right? Mm, Right, yes. Yes. (laughs) You've got got this young woman you're about to marry. No doubt he had visions for his life. Didn't include her suddenly being pregnant with with God. Didn't include fleeing to Egypt. Didn't include raising God. Mm. Didn't include having to keep his mouth shut about what he knew. And one of the things that hits me, it's hit me in the chest over and over and over again over the last few months, is that we don't have a record in the Gospels of Joseph dying. Like Mm. there's no time in which we're told, you know, and and Joseph died yeah, and so on and so on happened. And what hit me about it is that he lived with such a light touch, Mm. with so much grace that he could pass without drama.
0: Wow. Wow.
1: Jesus could let him pass
0: mm. without drama, mm.
1: right? That Jesus wasn't there trying to keep his dad alive. You know, dad, you've got to stay with me. Mm. Or Joseph telling himself, you know, I've got to be there for my son. Like that there's a way, there was an open handedness to the way that he lived that showed itself in how he died so that it could happen. And we don't even notice that it's happened. Mm-hmm. And man, something about that Ooh. is, is incredibly freeing for me. And it's, it's Hmm. back to, that's what it means to wait with God. Yeah. We got the, and you introduced me to this, but you know, that the, the frames, We've got all the time in the world. Yeah. Ooh, that right. Song, right. I mean, if we were doing an altar call, we need that song right now. Right?
0: I tell you, all <laughs> the time in the world to get it right. And the way it builds, like, it's just, oh, I can't, I think about that song still all the time. It's so powerful in that yeah, way because but, it does. And Howard yeah. Watts would talk about that, that sense of like Christians uniquely sort yes. of have all the time in the world. Like, there's everything doesn't have to be urgent all the time. That's right.
1: Well, it, right and that, I think there's, that's what I was trying to name early, earlier, with there's deep longing, deep passion. Mm. And there are urgencies, but sure. they're not driven. Yeah, yeah. They're not, well. you know, pulled out ahead of themselves or not sped up out of control. And mm-hmm. I think, like a, a, kind of fully human life, a, a life that's kind of worthy of being human, and, and worthy of the grace that it is to be human, is a life that has that urgency. It has intensity. Yeah. It has desire. It, it's you know the zeal of your house has eaten me up jesus would say right and yet he's never running ahead of himself mm. like he's he's never mm. he's never out of the moment into some imagined future and you know in advent that's what we're that's what we're training for is is to have all of that urgency all of that passion mm. but not not to be sped up not to, not to get you know my my grandfather would often say nothing good happens in a hurry Nothing good happens our mm,
0: right? mm.
1: And like that seems right to me, right? There's, the, yeah. but that has to be married to the urgency you're talking
0: about, right? Like somehow yeah. th- those things have to hold, have to hold together. Um, Chris, you I mean, I feel like you're, probably nobody has embodied more or uh, taught me more about how, you know, we're not telling the stories, the stories are telling us. I'm like thats the, I've never heard you say that line. It's this thing I feel like that you do and it's in you, that you live. But I, I kind of, in writing this, some of these things that felt like vignettes—it's so strange because—and I, I know again, it's not a—it's—it's it's a small work, but even adding the little epilogue at the end and the sort of mm-hmm. little reflection on Joseph, because the this, this scene is, yeah, it is all about Jesus and it's all about Mary. Joseph is not the one you remember, and conducting that with my own sort of experience to say, yeah. this is the great open secret of the universe. It's really good to be a stepdad, and that's, and how, that's exactly <laughs> what I was going to
1: ask you about. Like, I I wanted to ask, when did that when did that connection happen for you? That connection you make to to Joseph. Do you remember? Like, was there a moment in which it clicked? And if so, I want to hear about that.
0: I, I don't. That was one of those things. I when I was working on the the manuscript before, that just felt like it kind of came out of out of nowhere. But definitely, just seems to be more the. The journey i've been living, and I think that in the same way that i don't know on a surface level don't really know how to work out all the things we've been talking about about surrender and resistance, and how does any of that work and these things you just sort of live into because uh, mm. I think it's sort of the nature of my life the last few years has been so has been about being present in these in these ways and and finding and just finding that to be enough. I'm, not that everything has to be about getting to some place of emotional equilibrium, but like it feeling right to me. But Chris, this is kind of a new experience for me because while I still have all kind of urgency and heat, hence why hurling this thing out of the world last minute in this kind of uh, manic way. I mean, is its own is its own thing. But I keep having these moments. Literally yesterday, when I was driving back from Fillmore, they have a tradition where. Uh, uh, this It was the Sunday where instead of being in the sanctuary, we meet in the fellowship hall and the pianist plays and people call out Christmas hymns they want to sing. And so we we sung hymns kind of impromptu for, you know, 30, 40 minutes. I gave a little talk. We prayed like that was it. When I think about most any other experience I've had in ministry, anything vocational, like whatever, how many times you, you get done with thing a thinking, I wish I would had done this or that. Here's how this could be better. Next week, will like whatever. And I noticed that when I was driving home yesterday, the only thing I was thinking was, that was really good. I'm so mm-hmm. glad I did that today. Like it was mm-hmm. just like the experience being enough. I feel like all of that, I don't know if it's a, more like a second half of life journey. But all of that's yeah. a little new for me, <laughs> like kind of having these moments like the Joseph thing and that Where I'm like, oh yeah, that was, yeah. that was really good. Like, I don't need to improve this. I don't need to do better next week or, you know, it's just not, that's not there the same way.
1: Mm. Man, is that enough? That, that there's my, my mind is going in so many directions at once, but I, I do think that as always, there are paradoxes here and there, there are, opposites that are brought into mm. brought into alignment with each other but that that are forced to coincide by the goodness of God but i do think that you know it's there there is back to this point about urgency and desire there is a way in which we we can't be too easily we shouldn't be too easily satisfied with the way the world is yes you know that yes. we we have to hunger for th- for justice and righteousness for it to come we have to We have to demand. We have to fight like the saints do. And yet, I I think another mark of the holy life is that when we're talking about what other people need, Mm. we never say, well, that's just the way the world is. We just have to accept it. Yes. Yes. We're always fighting for them to have uh, the fullness of justice and peace. But when we're talking about the gifts that are given to us, wow, we're very easy to satisfy. Mm. When it, when that gift is just sitting around with forty gray-haired people singing Christmas hymns, that should be enough yeah. for us. Yeah. And if it's not, we need to hold that up. Like, why is it not? Why is it not enough? And a lot of that depends on, as you said, like where you are in life. You know, you're not a twenty-year-old sure. who's kind of at the beginning of whatever you're going. I mean. You know, you're, you're at a different place in life. And so you can experience it differently. But I, again, I want that for myself. I want mm. to be able to, to never be satisfied on behalf of someone else when they don't have justice yeah. and just say, well, that's the way the world is. But I do want to be able to say, you know, who my wife and kids are, who my yeah. friends are, who, who I am mm-hmm. is enough. Mm-hmm. I, I that I can have peace with, mm-hmm. and and to accept every small grace as the grace I need. And, mm-hmm. and again, I'm not I'm not doing that well, but I can at least see it and want it. You know, I can at least say, okay, I want to have that kind of. I want to be. George McDonald has that line about God: He's easy to please and hard yeah. to satisfy.
0: Oh, that's so great! Yeah, mm. and I th- mm. I think that's what I think that's
1: what we're naming here. Like you're you're yeah. driving home you're pleased, right? Because yeah. you're you you are not satisfied for all that's happening in the world, right. but you, you sense God's pleasure in that, and, and that was enough.
0: Well, when you describe that tension and paradox, and Chris, that names it so beautifully because it is both uh, uh, it, it, the whole Catalyst Minds book has been every, like a screaming sense of this is not okay. I mean, I go around thinking that all the time in a way. This is not okay. And this very different way as you say when it comes to the gifts that we have personally, it feels like, Oh, everything feels like a feast right now. It's like, Oh, well these, well, what more could you ask for? And, and that being, it's just a very, a very interesting place to, 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 to learn to live.
1: And I think that's part of like the only people we should be trusting to tell us about what's going wrong in the world and how to make it right. Are the people who are small enough to enjoy the small pleasures of life and be at peace, like because the moment we sense that someone's cry for justice is actually a cry for attention, yeah, you know that they're 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 screaming about this or that, but really what we hear is notice me. Like mm. it loses not just credibility, it loses the force the truth has, right? Yeah, it's no longer spirited in the same way. Yeah, and I think th- th- again the prophets. Are different from that, right? That that we hear, we're hearing in their voices not their own ego crying out for attention, but we are hearing the heart of God, hmm. and and that's you know I I was just reading today Robert Jensen talking about the here I, I've got it right here on the desk. Hmm. Listen to this. He's talking about it's a sermon he preached. He's a very young man. I mean, he would have been in his thirties, I think, when he preached this, and it was a Christmas sermon or a Christmas Eve sermon, I think. And he's talking about the people in his parish or in this parish where he's preaching kind of raging against the commercialization of Christmas, right? And this is is what he says about it. Do not mistake me. We indeed live every act of our lives in the presence of God. But if we find no place in the life of faith for jingle bells, Mm. If we sing (laughs) such joyous things as Britain's ceremony of carols at concerts, but not in church, Mm. or if we sing the same carol gaily and spontaneously outside a girl's dormitory at midnight and glumly and laboriously in chapel, then we have misunderstood which God we are dealing with Mm. for the real God before whom we live. The God of Christmas is not nearly so religious and serious as we are. Wow. He does not only enjoy hymns, he likes to relax a little from time to time. Mm, <laughs> and, man. And like, what's again, what's holy about that, right, is mm. that he's confronting mm. that kind of religious self seriousness that captures mm. us sometimes. And it captures us wherever we fall on the spectrum, socially and politically, like whatever our tradition is, we can start to talk about God in all capital letters and talk about justice. And sometimes we just need to sing jingle bells, right? Yeah. And <laughs> that's so the, great the that that kind of deflation of our, our ego is somehow tied mm. to the opening of our heart to the world. Like mm. th- that if my ego isn't the issue, then my heart can be as wide as all things. And yeah. But but one or the other has to happen, right? Like yeah. like
0: if, if I'm not humble, I can't truly have a heart for everyone. Mm. Man, that's so that's so wonderful, Chris. And I love the i'll I'll remember that line that if there's not <laughs> there's not space for jingle bells that's so this is and and by the way, this might be landing with a little pentecostal grandiosity right here. maybe that's not egoless, but I have to say because i, I this this came to me somehow i think it was when you mentioned kind of in passing something about when you enjoy <laughs> art or a film or something together Because, you know I feel like we Whenever we're together, I feel like it's, it's just furious fun. I mean, just furious fun. I mean, we just kind of like, it's intensely fun. We're both, I think, mad scientists in our own way. And so the, all the, you know, just the flood of conversation about movies and TV shows and music and theology and all this stuff that like happens. But Chris, I really thought about a few minutes ago for some reason, how we met, I think, around Oklahoma City, and we went to go see The Hateful Eight yeah exactly. and on the way back um I saw a car on fire on the side of the road. I thought maybe somebody's in danger i I pull off, I go down off the off the interstate go, go towards it like thinking I need to see if everybody's okay, and as I get close to the car, like something out of a movie, the car actually explodes, just explodes like literally like like push me back a uh, a few months ago w- when we have your amazing ordination service and we're sitting out of the patio in the gazebo at our friend's house and we have this wonderful conversation. That's, you know, that's very much like that in, in all these ways. And you can't just, you just can't make this stuff up. Um, apparently a few hours after that lightning struck the gazebo and it burnt <laughs> down. Am I right about this? <laughs> well, it it actually,
1: it did. It struck through the gazebo and hit the fireplace. And exploded that into the house, and you know destroyed that that section of the wall. I mean, it, it's it was. Stunning. I mean, still. I was just there six six months or so, I guess have passed. Well, I guess four months, and they're still working to repair it. So yeah, it's it was a serious serious event.
0: So I think I'm just wondering, Chris, why it is that uh, whenever we're together, that we seem like there's always such such an amazing sense of fun, and yet it also seems like something ends with catching on fire. Like, I I don't know what that thing is. (laughs) Oh,
1: my gosh, yeah. Well, I mean, here's the thing. Everybody, well, nearly everybody that we grew up with, their answer would be, you know, God is trying to to stop this, whatever this is. So hopefully it's not that. Hopefully it's not a, it's not God just barely mis- trying to strike us, and just barely missing us.
0: Yeah, it's that, or, or, or some sort of sign and wonder. It's like I, when I had this. There was oh, a, it could be that. Yeah, yeah. A microburst at my house here in Greencastle, uh, like during a storm a few weeks ago, and four trees came down. One in my car, three in the house, and. I you know walk outside and nothing happened to any other houses around me. I'm like I'm the worst person in the world for this to, hap- to happen to. Like you know how many nights that I was awake all night trying to figure out what it meant that I got like a like a pan pizza like a personal tornado. <laughs> like what? What have I done now? <laughs> you know. <just> sort of <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
1: well, that makes me think it's not about me at all. It just keeps happening to you. I just happen to be in the vicinity. Which right, is, I don't Jonah.
0: know. <laughs> exactly, right. exactly right. I was, I should have been more nervous about coming to your ordination service. to just like, I'm just, at least nothing caught on fire. That. <laughs> oh
1: my gosh. Yeah. Well, We'll see what happens once we've recorded this. By the time you go public with it, we'll see if there's. What's played out? Dear Any God, sort of apocalyptic
0: signs and wonders? Yes, <laughs> That's exactly.
1: Right.
0: Chris, I'm serious. Well, man, Thank um, you for. the book. Oh, well, I can't. I was about. To, I was about to say to you. I can't think. I really don't know how to thank you enough. The the forward is so perfect, and both both the the gift that that, that is, but also the way that you saw Margaret in the book and pushing me like more in that direction. I just now, of course it feels like such a spirit thing, but at the time it really was like, Oh, maybe cause I was so squeamish as busy as you are. Like, I don't even want to bug Chris with this, but I just, it really no, no. felt like the the book became something else because of your mm-hmm. openness to, to engage it in this way. So, so thank you for that. And thank you for the ways that, you know, not only you're always illuminating the stories of scripture, but illuminating the stories in my life in different ways—that's part of what's wonderful about a conversation about this. Which I, I, I know to expect now. It always happens—is I walk away from like, oh, now I understand, I now understand what I was doing in my book. Now I understand what's happening in my life because I feel like that's just the—that's the kind of clarity that you always that you always mm. bring. And I, I, what what an extraordinary gift that is.
1: Yeah, that's kind of you. I, I do think part of the joy for me in this is is to have seen the early version of what you're writing and to be able to recognize it. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, Oh, this is, this is what's happening here. And then now what we, what you've done, I I think is true to that. And I, I think you'll hear that from people. I think those you probably already are hearing, but more and more as people read it, I think they'll sense that. And the holiness that she bore witness to and, and that we all really know we need. I mean, that's, that's the other thing I think about being around saints. You eventually you realize, Oh, I needed that. i like yeah. that. That's what I, need. whatever yeah. that is. And the gosh, we need, we're desperate for more. For God send us more, more saints. I like to say about myself that I'm not a saint, but I, I do believe that I'm essential to making other people saints. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. <laughs>
0: and, the the I I know we need them
1: for sure. God give mm-hmm. us more. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I feel like you know it's just sort of and needing you would have brought up Ricky Moore as well. I think it's kind of I just yeah. I kind of just realized the more we talk about these folks in our lives and the more we tell those stories, how well I don't know. Just that uh, I, I really am am gravitating to that right now. Like okay, I may not be a saint, but I have known a handful, and I got I got to talk about them. I got to talk about their lives, you know, because there is a way that I think. People come to know our own saints through us, and vice versa, you know, just through yeah. through telling the stories.
1: It's interesting, and we we should probably stop with this because we can go on forever. But I I had to write a piece for Ricky's Fesser. If you wrote a piece too, you know, for the the collection celebrating his life, and that Robbie and I edited, and I ended up writing about Mary, and it just hit me just now. Wow, that. Both you with Margaret and me with Ricky, like when we we went to talk about what they mean to us, it was Mary's story that gave us language for that. I don't mm. think that's an accident either. I, wow. It just hit me, so I'm not even sure what else to make of it. But that does seem does seem important. Back to what I was saying about
0: mothering. Yeah, man. I, Which it, of course is not related to gender roles, right? Well, that was what I was going to say, Chris. In the same way that you were talking about before, there's a there's there is a kind of singularity of the saints, but then there's a this way that they sort of all become so one because while they have all have their unique gifts to be certain. How interesting is it that Margaret and like in Ricky Moore, I feel like it's so, all the same things. The playfulness is there. The mischief is there the kind yeah. of heaviness and lightness is there. It is, there are mark, there are markers, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that th- they very much hold in common.
1: Oh, absolutely. Cause it's, it's an integrated life, right? And it's, yes. it's a life that, that is, is holding it all together. And therefore yeah. all of that stuff is present in different, in unique formulations, of course, but it is all that stuff. It isn't, yeah. they, they wouldn't be saints if some of it was,
0: you know, kept from view or hidden from us. Yeah. Or from them. Uh, yes, yes. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, Chris, thank you so much for this time and for this for this conversation. Yet, uh, yet another gift I'm grateful for. Thank you, man. I love you. I'm, I'm excited about this book, and
1: I, I look forward to any chance we get to to talk. So, thanks for that. Absolutely, love you too, friend. It's been special.